I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for tuning in today. It's Friday. That means we're talking about Minnesota politics. And there's one big political story this week, that draft opinion from the Supreme Court that shows a majority on the court, five justices, are ready to overturn Roe v. Wade, the 1973 court decision that made abortion legal in this country. Even though Chief Justice John Roberts cautioned that a final decision could look different, the draft sent shockwaves through American politics. Joining me now to talk about what looks like a court poised to overturn the right to abortion is a supporter of that right, DFL U.S. Senator Tina Smith. Senator Smith, thanks for coming on. Well, thank you, Mike. I'm glad to be with you this uh, springy Minnesota Friday. What was your first reaction Monday night when you saw that story on Politico? Well, those of us who have been working to defend abortion rights for a long time were, you know, expecting that something like this could happen. But I have to say, it just felt like a gut punch reading those first words. And the the, the far-reaching implications of Alito's draft opinion, because it was not sugar-coated. I mean, he just, it was brazen in what he was saying about denying uh, women their reproductive rights and saying that Roe should be overturned. It was um, it was a terrible moment. And I just thought about all of the women that I saw um, going through the doors of Planned Parenthood for so many years, for so many different reasons, including for abortion care. And I thought, how dare they think that they have a better idea of what those women's lives are about and what those women's need than, than the women themselves who are fully capable of making good decisions about their own lives. Chief Justice Roberts, as I mentioned, said that the opinion could still change. Do you think it will? Uh, could the Supreme Court still stop short of overturning Roe versus Wade? Well, I think that you have to take this draft opinion at face value. They may have, they may you know smooth it up a little bit, maybe make it not so aggressive in its tone. But I think that the intention that they have of denying uh, people this fundamental freedom, um, autonomy over their own body, um, is really clear. And uh, it is it's a dramatic turn and really, I think, dramatic in part because this has been settled law in this country for nearly 50 years. So to overturn that precedent, overturn those rights is really dramatic. And I think the first time in my living memory that the Supreme Court has actually rolled back uh, rights. Mm hmm. Uh, in Minnesota, there's a state Supreme Court decision. It's called Doe versus Gomez. It says that basically says the state constitution includes the right to abortion. So unlike other states, if Roe does go away, abortion wouldn't automatically become illegal here. Is that enough? Is that enough of a defense? Well, um, Minnesotans have a a, a clear uh, decision and, and, and clear uh, Supreme Court case law um, because of the Gomez decision. And, and that is certainly a good thing for the um, people who live in Minnesota. But I think it's just important to appreciate how tenuous that is. And um, that is dependent, of course, on who is, sits on the Supreme Court, whether those justices respect precedent. I would hope that they do. But, of course, that depends on who puts them there. So I think it is a very important thing as people think about the election coming up, um, who they want to be appointing justices to the Minnesota Supreme Court. Um, you know, I think this is a clear difference between Republicans and Democrats, both at the federal level as well as here in Minnesota. And, you know, I also want to just point out that um, that there are still women in Minnesota who have to travel um, hundreds of miles in order to get um, abortion care. And increasingly, we are seeing women from other states 
come to Minnesota where they're able to get the care that they need. I was visiting a, a clinic in Bloomington, Minnesota, a couple of weeks ago, and they told me how they were seeing many more women coming from other states like Missouri or even Texas. Um, and what a terrible um, burden that is uh, for people who are trying to figure out transportation, who's going to take care of their children, because most peop- most women who seek abortions already have children of their own. And the, the level of burden that those um, women are facing was really um, stunning to hear about. And so what happens if Minnesota is an island in the upper Midwest? Sounds like, you know, it's already happening that... Uh, Yes. Um, care is limited. Will it become more limited if if the Supreme Court does this? Well, certainly the um, there are states surrounding Minnesota that have these so-called trigger laws. Those laws basically say if Roe versus Wade is overturned at the federal level, women in this state will immediately lose their um, fundamental uh, right uh, and, and rights and freedoms. So that will put additional pressure on Minnesota clinics and providers. You know, we already have providers in Minnesota that travel, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles to provide care to patients in um, in South Dakota, and um, that will become um, impossible. And so then those women would have to try to figure out how to come to Minnesota. You can start to imagine when you think about the logistics of this for people who are um, trying to make who are making good decisions about their own lives and then these barriers that are put ahead of them. I mean, it will mean no doubt that women will be confronted with terrible decisions and are not going to be able to get the care that they need um, because the time just runs out or they don't have the, the resources to make those trips. Now, there's a lot of work that's happening to try to protect those um, freedoms as best we can, but it will become much, much, much more difficult. How do you respond to people who disagree with you on this and say this is an issue about life and that the Supreme Court is doing the right thing here? I think that it is important with this issue to understand that people have varying views and to be respectful of one another. And I I certainly feel that. And I have had many, many conversations with people who have different views about abortion. What I think is crucial, though, is that it, it fundamentally comes down to who gets to decide for themselves what their values are, what their needs are, what is best for them and their families in this instance. And I just firmly believe that I do not want, frankly, Republican politicians making that decision for me or for anybody else. I trust women to be able to make those decisions. And that's really what this is about. You're in the doctor's office or you're talking with a nurse practitioner. You're making a decision about your own body, your own health care. And yet there's a Republican politician somewhere saying, nope, you can't make that decision. That's not your choice. We are going to control that, not you. Uh, to me, that's the core value, and I think it's the most fundamental of American values, right? Uh, that uh, that fundamental value of, of freedom and the ability to decide for yourselves what you're going to do um, um, in your in your own lives. Uh, you brought up uh, Republican politicians. Did did Democrats do enough to protect these rights? Republicans did seemingly everything in their power, and maybe then some. Um, did, did the Democrats not fight back against this hard enough? Well, I think that it is important to understand that this has been a multi-decade um, Republican uh, plan to overturn Roe versus Wade and also to get onto the United States Supreme Court um, justices that had uh, been recommended by um, anti-choice organizations as being um, trusted to do the work of overturning Roe versus Wade. And that's what we are seeing right now. What I would say 
to Minnesota voters in response to your question is the decision here could not be more clear. You as a voter get to decide, do you want people representing you who support this fundamental right or do you want people who are going to do everything they can to undermine it? And it's actually interesting. I was just looking at some polling data from Minnesota done by Heart Research right before this um, draft opinion uh, came out saying that um, nearly 70 percent, 69 percent of Minnesotans support Roe versus Wade. So these Republicans are just completely out of step with where um, with where Minnesotans are um, across the board. Uh, there's been a call uh, to enact the provisions of Roe versus Wade in federal law. It looks like Democrats don't have the votes to do that in the Senate, especially if you have to overcome a filibuster, right? That is uh, that is absolutely true. The um, idea of enacting into law uh, the protections of Roe versus Wade is something that people are working on at the federal level where I'm working and also at the state level where I believe there might be a vote um, on that next week, um, putting those putting that clearly into into state law. There is not a majority of um, of senators that are prepared to that are, that will support that. Republicans are unanimously opposed. And of course, in the Senate, you have to have 60 votes to overcome that. So I think that vote will be important for voters to be able to see where people stand. But we have to look at other things that we can do. We're going to be organizing around this. We're going to be looking at what administrative action we can take. And um, and we're going to be also looking at there if there are um, you know other other provisions that we can put into law that protect people's access. Maybe particularly, I'm thinking about medication abortion, which is now over 50 percent of the um, of the women who receive abortions are receiving them through a medication. So you think you could keep that legal across the country, even in light of uh, this possible Supreme Court decision? Well, I don't know. I think a Supreme Court decision would uh, will, will, will be the decisive factor. Mm-hmm. But we're looking for ways that we can keep access to medication abortion as available as possible um, for women uh, so that they, they have that option. Uh, do you see this impacting uh, other rights, same-sex marriage, interracial marriage, other things that fall under a wide umbrella of a right to privacy? Well, you know, it's interesting. I have been, um, you know, so focused at this dramatic uh, uh, taking away of a right with um, abortion that, you know, that has been my primary focus. But when you look at the way in which Justice Alito described his uh, the decision-making, he said the word abortion doesn't appear in the United States Constitution, therefore it can't be a constitutional right. Well, that would call into question uh, the right for women to be able to access contraception. It calls into, because that's not in the Constitution. Um, a colleague of mine yesterday pointed out that the word corporation isn't in the United States uh, con- uh, Constitution. So that uh, restrictive level of interpretation of the Constitution, I think, flies in the face of common sense. And it would call into question lots of other Supreme Court precedents, like, for example, the right of individuals to marry um, someone of the same sex or the right of individuals to marry someone of a different race. Those are all precedents of the Supreme Court that the Alito draft decision calls into question. Mm-hmm. You've said a couple times uh, in the last few minutes that uh, people have to get out and vote. What yeah. impact do you think this this likely decision will have on this year's election? Well, I believe that it will have a galvanizing impact on the election. People uh, see this as having a fundamental right that they have counted on for over 50 years being taken away. There's a 
could not be more clear of a difference between Democrats and Republicans on this issue. As I was referring earlier to some polling um, that was recently done in Minnesota, those same voters said that this would be decisive. I wouldn't vote for a candidate who said that they wanted to take away the protections of Roe versus Wade for women. Uh, that data tells me what I see in my life every day, which is that people are really angry about this. They don't think this is the way it should be. It feels deeply unfair. And I would say women feel deeply disrespected by this. And I think that it will be a very important issue. DFL U.S. Senator Tina Smith, thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you, Mike. I'm so glad to be able to talk with you. This is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. It's Friday. This hour, we're talking about politics, specifically about that draft of the U.S. Supreme Court decision that shows five of the nine justices are prepared to vote to overturn Roe v. Wade. That's the 1973 decision that legalized abortion in the United States. Joining me now is Republican State Senator Michelle Benson of Ham Lake. Senator Benson is the past chair of the Senate Health and Human Services Finance and Policy Committee. I should note that up until last week, she was also a Republican candidate for governor. Senator Benson, thanks for coming on. I'm glad to join you. Now, you have long opposed abortion. What was your first reaction when you heard about this draft of, of this opinion from the Supreme Court? Well, of course, the leak was unprecedented, and that should be shocking to anyone who follows the culture and um, practice of the Supreme Court. But more than that, now it's time for us to have a sincere, thoughtful conversation about abortion law in Minnesota and what that means for women, how we protect babies. Um, We haven't had that conversation since Roe was decided. And so as we go forward, I think that thoughtful look for consensus, what do Minnesotans believe conversation is going to be really key to how we we resolve this issue. Some of the polls say that um, more than 60 percent of people don't think Roe versus Wade should be overturned. Is that not consensus? Is there is there something beyond that where you think the two sides can reach an agreement? Well, and I. I think a lot of people weren't asked the question um, when you ask, should Roe versus Wade be overturned? Did you ask the question, should states be allowed to make abortion law? Would be a different way to phrase that question. Or ask the question, should a baby who's achieved viability have some protections in law to prevent them being aborted. I think if you ask different questions, you will get different answers. I think there is stronger support in the United States than that poll would indicate for protections in viability or when a child is capable of feeling pain or at some point pre-viability. And so I think I think that is how you would need to ask a more detailed question. I think most people don't understand what Roe versus Wade did. Uh, you're not going to be in the state Senate next year, but assuming this uh, opinion becomes a reality or some form of this opinion, what should the strategy of abortion opponents be? Um, because abortion will still be legal in Minnesota, right? Right. So in Minnesota, we have Dovi Gomez, which a lot of people are going to have to become familiar with now. Um, it hadn't been part of the conversation before, but it essentially is Roe versus Wade 
for Minnesota plus a requirement for funding, uh, which has been a challenge for a lot of the pro-life community. But I think now the conversation needs to move to how do we support women? How do we have a conversation that looks for consensus? Where is it that we think unborn children should be protected? And how do we bring people to the table in a way that acknowledges the really difficult reality of not having had abortion conversation for the last 50 years? Everybody's been able to just take one side and stand and scream at the other side instead of saying, okay, where is a real place that Minnesotans can land? Mm-hmm. But the state has passed some restrictions, a waiting period and parental notification. Do you think that's an indication yes. that uh, that there are more restrictions out there that, that a legislature, a governor would support? Well, And as we look at, for example, most of Europe has a 15-week restriction and then or it's uh, abortions permissible prior to 15 weeks, and then after that, there are more restrictions. So having a conversation about what other countries have done. Um, Some will want to talk about what other states have done. I think that's a worthwhile conversation. I think that is how we actually start this conversation and look towards consensus. Mm -hmm. Uh, You mentioned uh, this case, uh, state Supreme Court case, Doe v. Gomez, uh, it uh, recognizes a right to abortion in the state constitution, and as you say, it also um, requires uh, government to to pay for abortions in in some cases. Um, do you think that can be overturned? Is there a way that opponents uh, should go about trying to overturn that? Um, first of all, you have to have legislators who are willing to pass law. One, a governor who's willing to sign that law. And then you need judges who are willing to reevaluate the Dovi Gomez precedent in light of Roe being overturned, uh, which we'll see if this decision actually becomes the decision of the court. Mm-hmm. But those are all the steps that would be required to overturn Dovi Gomez. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so the Supreme Court would still have have to overturn that. It would still have to go to the state Supreme Court. Yes. Um, what about the um, Senator Smith mentioned that uh, it seems like a, a majority of abortions now use the what they call the abortion pill or a medical uh, medicinal a chemical abortion. abortion, right? Um, should that be banned? It's a that's a growing number of abortions, and those are largely pre-viability abortions. And as much as I you know, I'm pro-life. I think this is where part of our debate needs to happen. And people want to take the most extreme position and argue that position instead of saying, as I have always said, our public policy can't move faster than our private conversation. And if you start having conversation with Minnesotans who've seen ultrasound pictures and planned a nursery and named an unborn child and had baby showers, I think our conversation about abortion changes from the example that Senator Smith raised. Mm-hmm. If um, if the goal is fewer abortions overall, uh, is there a requirement 
or or does that require expanding the social safety net? I, I mean, passing things like paid family leave, maybe a higher minimum wage, more subsidies for child care. I, I, are there ways to make it easier for people to have children? And the Senate did, under my leadership, did a, a pro-life bill last year. We made sure that mothers would have insurance coverage for that first year so that as they faced the real possibility of postpartum depression as they needed breastfeeding and lactation support, that they would have that kind of coverage. We also were very specific about um, maternal mortality and morbidity. How are we changing the way we care for people in diverse communities to make sure that they can bring their babies to term in a safe way that respects where they come from and how they live, but that ultimately that baby um, is born and that mother experiences the good of motherhood. Uh, this is a divisive issue. Do you think, um, you know, people people on both sides have, have strongly held opinions. Is there a way to, to bring people together, or do you think we're past that at this stage, and, and that it, you said you know it is going to be both sides yelling at each other? It has been both sides yelling at each other, but if the draft in the Dobbs decision is what is the decision of the court, it moves the conversation to the states. We need to be really clear. Roe versus Wade being overturned doesn't ban abortion across this country. It moves the conversation to the states, and we are going to have to have that debate here in Minnesota. And I would encourage people on both sides to seek understanding for where the other person comes from. Um, When does life begin? When do we have an interest in protecting the right of that unborn child? Is it at the moment of birth? Is it at the moment of conception, or is it somewhere in between? And yes, we can all stay entrenched where we are, but as someone who is pro-life, I will always seek to reach out and build trust with someone who might not trust the pro-life movement, understand where they're coming from, and help them understand where I'm coming from. Because if the goal is to support women and save babies, that's how we need to approach this. Well, finally, let me ask you a political question, because a lot of Democrats think this is going to have an impact on this year's election and maybe fire some of their supporters up. What do you think? Um, I think people are, yes, concerned about this, but I think there's also great concern over public safety. It is immediate in everyday life. There's also great concern for what's happening in our education system and, frankly, how expensive it is getting to just go to the gas station, go to the grocery store. The cost of everything is rising. Those will be key issues as well. And so the conversation about abortion will be in that mix. But this is the first step in the conversation about abortion. This is not the NLBL. We are going to see a change, but it is not everything that voters are going to care about. Michelle Benson, Republican state senator from Ham Lake, thanks so much for coming on today. I was grateful for the opportunity. Please have a good afternoon. You too. And this is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Last Sunday, the President of the United States, other elected officials, family, friends, and admirers said goodbye to a remarkable Minnesotan. Walter F. Mondale died last year at age 93, but a memorial service for the former vice president was delayed because of the COVID-19 pandemic.
One of the eulogists at the service at Northrop Auditorium at the University of Minnesota was Pulitzer Prize-winning historian John Meacham. We thought it would be fitting to end this week by hearing what John Meacham had to say about Walter Mondale. The story begins the year before he was even old enough to vote. It was a late July afternoon in 1948, and Fritz Mondale, then all of 20, had been put in charge of the 2nd Congressional District for Hubert Humphrey's U.S. Senate campaign. No one knew what second prize was. The annual Martin County Farm Bureau Federation picnic at Fox Lake Park needed a speaker, and Mr. Mondale arranged for Humphrey to headline the event. The political climate was charged and complicated in that American summer. There was anxiety at home, communist aggression abroad, as a Democratic president sought to govern a fractious party and a divided country. As Mark Twain once said, history may not repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Seen as too liberal by the right and too conservative by the left, Harry Truman would say he didn't give Republicans hell. He just told them the truth, and they thought it was hell. In his own party, President Truman faced opposition over his desegregation of the military and his push for civil rights. Only weeks before the Martin County picnic, Mayor Humphrey's civil rights speech at the Democratic Convention in Philadelphia had helped send Dixiecrats, segregationist Dixiecrats, out of the hall and back into the old Confederacy. But far from the Olympian drama of Philadelphia, in Martin County, after the 4-H club band had played, Humphrey took the stage. He was passionate and funny. He said, kick the rascals out and vote the new rascals in. (laughs) Afterward, Humphrey thanked his young ally, telling Mr. Mondale, Your work is needed. We have so much to do. Mr. Mondale was over the moon. After that day, he recalled, I think I never stopped. I think I never stopped. And we live in a better, nobler, more perfect union because Walter Frederick Mondale never stopped. Now, for the politicians in the room, and there might be one or two of you who snuck through customs, an election result, in 1948, Humphrey carried Mondale's territory, the very Republican 2nd District, by 8,500 votes. It was Mr. Mondale's first victory, and it was a sweet one, second only, perhaps, to his seven dates and six months courtship of Joan Adams. The son of a Methodist minister and farmer, as a child, Walter Mondale absorbed a gospel that he never stopped seeking to put into practice, that we are summoned to love our neighbors as ourselves, to lift up the most vulnerable among us, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to strengthen the weak. There's nothing more important, nothing more American than that to enlist in the perennial battle to make real the founding ideal of this nation, that we are, in fact, created equal. We... Now, 
we, we can and we will and we do disagree about the means of governance. But at our best, Americans have agreed on the end of our common project to give everyone, in Lincoln's phrase, an open field and a fair chance. Walter Mondale devoted his life to that cause. He never stopped seeking a fuller, freer, fairer America. And his years in the arena are testament to a truth of human experience, that the poles and the passions of the moment are just that, of the moment. Headlines come and go, history endures. The tumult of politics rage. True service stands long after the furies of the moment have passed. Walter Mondale understood something fundamental, that we are at our best not when we build walls, but when we build bridges, not when we point fingers, but when we lend a hand, not when we fear, but when we hope. And from age to age, history honors those. History honors those who put we the people above the will to power, the rule of law above the reign of party, and difficult truths above self-serving fiction. Now, as we heard from Senator Smith, the Mondales were a stoic people. His father, Theodore, fought a stutter, struggled to farm, went to seminary, and raised a son, Fritz, who knew hardship but lived in hope. It was a hope that drove him all his life. He was born, think about it, he was born a year before the stock market crash. His childhood was shaped by the Great Depression. He believed in hard work. He liked to say he was the only P. Lice inspector to ever become vice president of the United States. I didn't check it, but I think he's on safe ground. Some might have preferred it. <laughs> he served in the U.S. Army, went to law school on the GI Bill, and always gave back to the country that had made his life possible. Now, he was often caricatured, as you all know, as a big government liberal. But he's better understood as a Cold War liberal a man devoted at home and abroad to freedom and to fairness. Freedom and fairness. Bear those words in mind, for they are the words that shaped Walter Mondale's consequential life. And Lord knows they are the words that must guide us still. In the struggle between democracy and dictatorship in the 20th century, Fritz Mondale cast his lot with neither the utopians of the left nor the reactionaries of the right. He stood instead for the centrality of the individual, for the sanctity of liberty, and for the pursuit of possibility against the totalitarian impulse. As Attorney General of Minnesota, he was instrumental in the Gideon case that gave indigent defendants the right to counsel. He brokered the deal that would end segregation forever in the Democratic Party long the bastion of Jim Crow. And then he came to the Senate. In the mid-1960s, in the seat that Hubert Humphrey had won the year of that Farm Bureau picnic, Senator Mondale sensed a vital intersection of forces. 
To him, as he put it, it was as if we took the intellectual heritage of Franklin Roosevelt, the moral inspiration of John Kennedy, and a decade of pent-up demand for social change and converted them into social reality. As a senator, he was a crucial voice for the Voting Rights Act of 1965. He led the battle for fair housing in 1968, mastering the Senate in that essential hour. And he never stopped. His causes included Title IX to open opportunities for women, Head Start in elementary and secondary education, filibuster reform, nutrition and anti-poverty programs, workers' rights, environmental protections, consumer protections, early attention to the crisis of climate change, the domestic side of the Church Committee, which revealed the FBI's wiretapping and harassment of Martin Luther King, Jr., the transformation of the vice presidency in the Carter years, a challenge to apartheid that ignited the chain of events that led to the release of Nelson Mandela, and the nomination of a woman, Geraldine Ferraro, to run with him on a national ticket. Walter Mondale was a giant of the Senate, a formidable vice president, and a truth-telling presidential nominee of his party, who never stopped standing by principle. Now, it, uh, to be sure, it was not always the smoothest of rides. Uh, Fritz Mondale knew the vicissitudes of politics as well as any American ever has. When he explored a run for president in 1976, he recalled that after a year, I was running six points behind I don't know, and I wanted to challenge him to a debate. <laughs> Mr. Mondale would tell the story of Sam Donaldson's asking Ronald Reagan in 1984, what do you want for Christmas? And Reagan said, Minnesota. <laughs> when he went to ask, when Mr. Mondale went to ask George McGovern, what it, when did it stop hurting to lose the presidency? Senator McGovern said, I don't know, I'll tell you when it happens. Walter Mondale loved his family. He loved fishing, Shakespeare, Dairy Queen, the United States Senate, Hubert Humphrey, cigars, and the state of Minnesota. And most of all, he loved America, its complexities and its hopes, its promise and its possibilities. He thought of himself as a public servant, as a citizen with an obligation to the common good, to him, government was not the enemy or the problem, but rather a manifestation of love of neighbor and of country. On the night of his defeat in 1984, he spoke not only to the moment, as painful as it was, but to history, saying, let us continue to seek an America that is just and fair. That has been my fight. I'm confident that history will judge us honorably. And so it has. One of Mr. Mondale's favorite verses of scripture tells us much. I have fought the good fight, St. Paul said. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. The first part of that chapter of 2 Timothy is quoted less often, but is worth remembering. Preach the word, the apostle wrote. Be prepared in season and out of season, in season and out of season. Justice knows no season. Truth knows no season. Freedom knows no season. Fairness knows 
no season. Walter Mondale knew that, he lived by that, and today we salute him for that. There are children in America today who will not go hungry because of Fritz Mondale. There are black people in America today who can vote and work and live more freely and fairly because of Fritz Mondale. There are women in America today who see no limit to their dreams because of Fritz Mondale. There are safer cars in America. There are rivers of clean water in America. There are enclaves of untouched wildlife in America today because of Fritz Mondale. He never stopped believing in this country. He never stopped fighting for its people. And thankfully, he never stopped defending democracy. He never stopped. And nor, in his memory, must we. That's historian John Meacham speaking Sunday at the memorial service for former Vice President, Senator, Ambassador, and Minnesotan Walter Mondale.